Ezekiel chapter 4 uh, this evening. If you're with us uh, tonight and uh, without a Bible, there are uh, men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and uh, just flag them, and they'll get a Bible into your hand. I think you'll be fairly lost on uh, Sunday nights without being able to follow along uh, with a, a Bible of your own. If you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you uh, tonight. In uh, chapters 4 and 5 of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is uh, called out now by God to uh, act out kind of certain signs before the uh, children of Israel who were captive uh, in uh, Jews and all, but captive in uh, Babylon and specifically at uh, at the tell that they were uh, working in as kind of slave, slave labor, the exiles there in Babylon, and to speak to them about the judgment that God was going to bring upon uh, Jerusalem. And uh, Ezekiel is kind of known for, uh, of all of the prophets, of uh, uh, the, he, he did much more of this kind of acting out a message or acting out something in order to gain the attention of the audience and then deliver the message uh, to them. And so he uses these kind of uh, action parables or visual parables uh, that God gave him specifically from the Lord to gain the attention uh, of the people, and then uh, which after the kind of the message of the parable was, uh, the, uh, was the aim in order for them to look at these and to gain attention. It was hard for God to uh, gain the attention of uh, His people. We're not talking about the Philistines or the Edomites. Uh, or some uh, pagan group of people in those days. We're talking about Judah. We're talking about Jews. We're talking about people who knew God, had a long history with God. And they've kind of had compartmentalized what was going on in Jerusalem. And the reason the captives were in Tel Aviv was they'd kind of compartmentalized their uh, relationship with God. And it's important to realize that in Jerusalem, uh, religion is booming. Uh, the temple is still there. All of the services are going on. All of the sacrifices are going on. But they'd so compartmentalized their relationship with God uh, that they had this little sliver that was uh, given over to God, uh, you know, on the Shabbat, on the Sabbath for them. And then the rest of their week was utterly dominated by idolatry, uh, disobedience to the Lord, absolute darkness. And uh, they had settled into the idea that uh, this is something that God should settle in and accept as well. And God says, no, I'm not going to do that. And uh, I'm not going to let you win here. And uh, always, when God wins, we win. And he's, he's going to win in their lives. And so, what he's having trouble with, uh, even their hearts are so hard that he not only has trouble getting them to take his message to them seriously, he's having trouble getting their attention to even deliver the message uh, to them. Uh, there's the old uh, joke related to this. Some of you perhaps have heard it about the farmer who couldn't get his mule to budge. And uh, no matter what he tried, the mule just wouldn't move. And finally, another farmer walked up, and he kind of sized up the situation pretty quickly, and, and he offered his help in uh, solving the problem. And uh, he reached into the back of, of a wagon, and he pulled out a two-by-four, and he hit the man's uh, mule hard, straight on the side of the head. Whap! And uh, the mule immediately began to follow orders. 
And uh, the man with the two-by-four turned to the mule's owner, and he said, a mule, do any, a mule will do anything for you, but first you have to get its attention. And that's the problem that God was having with the children uh, of Israel. And there isn't a mule in the world uh, that had or has anything on Israel in terms of being stubborn toward God, uh, toward their, uh, their master at this point in their history. And uh, it was going to take a lot more than a two-by-four to get their attention, but God uh, was trying. Now remember, as we come in in these, these uh, kind of uh, sermon parables that Ezekiel is going to act out, he's doing that before the captives in Tel Aviv, just a, a suburb, so to speak, of, of Babylon, but remember, back in Jerusalem, where Jeremiah is currently uh, prophesying to the Jews and calling on them to repent uh, of, of their sin, the false prophets, uh, and there's always false prophets that are working against the true prophets, and the false prophets were uh, telling the Jewish people that Babylon will never conquer Jerusalem. They will never conquer Judah because we're God's people and we have the temple and God would never, uh, no matter how sideways we go, God will never allow that temple to fall into the hands of, of, of the pagans, of, of the, uh, the Babylonians. And even for the Jews that had gone into captivity that Ezekiel was sitting in the midst of. The message was coming continually from Jerusalem, false prophecies saying, hold on, hold on, Babylon's going to be overthrown and you're going to be restored back to the land. All of it completely contrary to what God was prophesying both in Babylon and also in, uh, in Jerusalem. In fact, King Zedekiah at this very moment that Ezekiel is prophesying here, he is approaching uh, Egypt in the hope of g uh, uh, gaining Egypt's support in, in overthrowing uh, the Babylonian control uh, uh, of them in terms of Judah being a province of, of the Babylonian uh, empire. And of course, these prophecies that uh, uh, Babylon is going to be defeated. We're going to be restored to the land immediately. This would have been a very welcome uh, prophecy to the, the Jews there. The only problem is it was a false prophecy, and uh, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't going to happen. And so, this is the message God is, is delivering to the, uh, to the Jews there in Tel Aviv, uh, beginning chapter one, uh, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. He said, you also, son of man, a regular phrase that he used to describe uh, uh, Ezekiel, uh, take a clay tablet, and, and he's calling on him to take a, a piece of clay, a clay a tile, uh, picture in your mind uh, something maybe 12 inches by 14 inches. So he's to take a piece of clay, fashion it in, into that size. They would then typically put them into a kiln and, and they'd be hardened and become a tile. But take a clay tablet and lay it down uh, before you and, uh, and, uh, and portray on it a city, a city uh, Jerusalem. So the location of where he kind of acts this thing out is probably either right outside of his house or he's on some main thoroughfare there in Tel Aviv where a lot of Jews are walking by and God says, go ahead and do this. 
And it's the kind of thing that would have been very unusual to see a person doing, so it would have immediately gathered a crowd. People would have been uh, interested in it. You know, today we have 7,000 channels on TV. There's 50 movies that you can go. You know, we got entertainment and things that uh, capture our attention like crazy every day. It wouldn't take much that would be out of the ordinary to capture the attention of people back in those days, and this this certainly would have done it. And so he's told to portray uh, on the, 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 the tablet uh, a city. Uh, the clay is probably moist at this time. He kind of does an outline of, of the city. The outline of it would have been very recognizable to the Jewish exiles that, uh, that he, was, he was drawing the city of Jerusalem. And then he was instructed to lay siege Uh, against it. And he's going to portray now uh, what was going to happen to Jerusalem uh, ahead of time to these captives, the Jewish captives. And uh, uh, Jerusalem is going to be conquered by way of a siege. Uh, uh, Opposing armies would lay siege to a city and uh, so that nobody could come in and out. And then they would just basically wait them out until their food ran out uh, and their water ran out. And then they became diseased as a result of of the poor nutrition and malnutrition and until they would give up or be so weak that uh, to fight that once the city was stormed, the casualties would be minimum. It was a very uh, wise way to to uh, wage warfare if if you uh, it suited your uh, situation so This is exactly what's going to happen to Jerusalem. And so he begins to put these siege walls uh, up against uh, the city of Jerusalem. He begins to portray it in clay uh, on the tile and uh, and then build up siege mounds uh, against it. And they would put these great mounds of dirt up against the walls of the different cities in order to then take their battering rams up and begin to break down uh, the walls. All of this was to be portrayed because this is exactly what would happen when the Babylonians would conquer uh, Jerusalem and uh, set up camps all, uh, 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 against it also and place battering rams against it all around. So he lays the city out on the tile and then he lays the entire siege uh, of the, ba- the Babylonian army around uh, the city. And uh, they would have uh, looked at that and uh, they would have uh, probably recognized pretty clearly what it was that, that he was portraying. It was consistent with, the, uh, with what God was prophesying. And moreover, then take for yourself an iron plate, probably uh, something quite a bit heavier than a, uh, a cookie sheet, and, um, but something that size. It would be something that probably came out of Ezekiel's house and used for cooking bread. And he was to take that iron plate and he was to set it as a wall between himself and now the tile that he had there where he was portraying uh, the city. And then set your face against it and it shall be besieged and you shall lay siege against it and this will be assigned to uh, the house of, of Israel. And so... Ezekiel represents the Lord on this scene, and uh, he is communi- and, and uh, God is communicating uh, through uh, Ezekiel here that God is behind the siege uh, of Babylon. Uh, the pan represents kind of the division, the separation between God uh, and uh, uh, Jerusalem because of her sin. And here, as, as uh, Ezekiel takes and stares kind of dramatically at the model and all the siege mounds and everything, 
everything of, of Jerusalem in front of them. Uh, it symbolized uh, God's anger toward the city and, and God's wrath now being uh, directed against the inhabitants of what was supposed to be uh, a holy city. Probably the most troubling aspect of this whole thing that Ezekiel is doing before these Jewish captives would have been the realization that Jerusalem's greatest threat didn't come from the Babylonians, but it came from God. If Jerusalem thought their biggest problem was the Babylonians, they weren't listening. Their problem was their sin. And their problem was God's judgment that was going to come upon them. And, and Ezekiel represents God uh, on the scene, and, uh, and, and in, in him taking the place of God here, he is communicating that Jerusalem is going to fall. And, and shockingly to the Jewish mind, that it was going to fall uh, with the full knowledge of God. And worse than that, that it was going to fall is an act of God. Again, the false prophets were saying the exact opposite to the, uh, to the Jewish uh, people. Uh, of course, all of this, as you might imagine, if somebody did this at five points uh, here in Modesto or in the middle of the mall, a lower floor or upper floor, it's going to gather some kind of an, uh, an audience even today. And, uh, and it, it certainly did, and they, they would have understood his message. The second kind of parable or the uh, kind of prophetic drama that he was to uh, conduct it begins in verse 4 where God told, uh, said, lie also on your left side and uh, lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it according to the number of the days that you lie on it, you shall uh, bear their iniquity. So God calls him to go out of his house, probably somewhere near his house, on what is probably a main thoroughfare, and he is to lay on his side uh, uh, at the, in the street or on the edge of the street. Again, very unusual uh, for a person to do that. So once again, it would have gotten their uh, attention. Remember, Ezekiel's been prophesying, prophesying to them. They know that he claimed to be a prophet, and so this would have gotten their attention. And uh, he's to lie a certain number of days on his side and, uh, and bear the iniquity of, of the Jewish people uh, representing it there. For I have said, verse 5, uh, I have laid you uh, on you the years of their iniquity. According to the number of the days, 390 days, you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. The northern kingdom of Israel uh, was a, a, a more graphic and long-term in their sin against God. They went into captivity to the Assyrians long before before the southern kingdom of Judah went into ca captivity to the Babylonians. And so uh, he was to lay on his, uh, uh, on his uh, side 390 days, and that would represent the sin uh, of the house uh, of, of Israel. And, and when you have completed them, uh, then turn over onto your right side, and then you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Judah for 40 days. And each of those 40 days represented uh, a year for the sin of, of Judah. And so he was after, you know, uh, 390 days, uh, then he flips over, and now for 40 days on his, his right side, and uh, to representing the king, the, the sin of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Everybody tries to figure out, 
you know, why the 390 and then the 40 and all, nobody really knows except the one thing that is safe to probably take a guess at is certainly the northern kingdom of Judah was much more sinful in their history than, than the southern kingdom of Judah. And so it's represented by a longer uh, period of days. Only God knows what he sees in the world today, what he sees in a nation or in their history, and uh, whatever he saw in terms of the northern kingdom of Israel was much more uh, serious in his eyes, uh, uh, all of it serious, but, uh, you know, protracted than the southern kingdom of, of Judah. And therefore, you shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem, uh, your arm shall be uncovered, and you shall prophesy uh, against it. And so this uncovered arm, it speaks of, uh, it, it symbolizes kind of being ready for action uh, of God's readiness to carry out uh, His threat, to carry out the fulfillment of the prophecy that this that this represents. Again, Ezekiel is representing the Lord in this uh, dramatization. And, uh, and then the Lord says, uh, necessarily, in verse 8, and surely I will restrain you so that you cannot turn from one side to the other till you have ended the days of your siege. So remember, think about lying on uh, your side uh, every day out in a public place for 390 days. I don't know how long it takes you to get out of bed in the morning these days. It gets longer the older you get. I mean, every movement comes with a sound, ultimately. And uh, to be in that kind of a position for that many days, you would have need supernatural enabling to do it. And God says, I'll, I'll give you that to, to do. And then you'd think after the, here you've got the 390 days, and then uh, one day after another, after another, after another, after another, and here he is again, and here he is again, here he is again, count to 390 in that many days, and then one day you wake up, and he's on his other side. Well, that's new, but still 40 days is a long time, and, and God is just driving home uh, this, this point uh, to him, uh, to, to the captives. Now, most commentators are uh, of the opinion that Ezekiel wasn't in that position out on the road or on the side of the road, uh, you know, day and night for the 430 uh, days, but that he uh, came out of his house and, and that he spent a, a part of each day being seen by the public uh, in this way. And uh, after all, it was a visual aid. There was no sense in doing it all night if nobody was going to be out on the streets. One of the reasons that people think that is that uh, concerning some of the things that God is going to call him to do uh, in the remainder of chapter 4 and then into chapter 5 would have required uh, some movement on his part. In other words, the baking of bread, which comes next, and then the shaving of his, uh, his hair and, and of his, his beard. Now, I don't know how many of us might be in here tonight and, uh, and in our service to the Lord, uh, thinking about how hard it is. But um, if I do get in a pity party, all I need to do is just go home and say, just spend five days 
out on the sidewalk in front of my house on one side. This was tough, tough business that God was calling him to. I mean, tremendous sacrifice in, involved in it. Certainly, uh, you know, kind of cleans up the whiner uh, in, 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 in any of us. So, the, the, but the crowd is so spiritually dense that God drives home the same message for 430 days over and over again. Imagine hearing the same message for 430 days. And imagine God believing and knowing that it was necessary to do so for 490 days just to get their attention that they might uh, heed the message associated uh, with it. There's an old story of a that I like of a new pastor who had candidated for a, a new church and he was hired and the first Sunday he got up and preached and it was fabulous. I mean, everybody just couldn't believe, wow, we got this guy for our pastor, you know, and uh, so excited about it. And the next Sunday he came in and he preached the, the same sermon again. And they thought, you know, it, 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 that's still good. It wasn't as good as the first Sunday, but that's a great sermon. I mean, if any sermon's good, it should be preached twice. That sermon ought to be preached twice. The third Sunday, he got up and he preached the same sermon again. Now he's got the deacons upset. And uh, one of the deacons is kind of upset and irritated, comes to him, you know, and demands an explanation related to all of it. And he said, I'll go on to a new sermon when this one is obeyed. (laughs) And and there's a little bit of Ezekiel uh, in, in this and God behind Ezekiel. We're not going to move from this until you understand that uh, what I'm, I'm communicating uh, to you uh, here. And it, it appears that, uh, you know, we're, again, not to picture Ezekiel's audience as kind of getting it immediately, seeing it, okay, this is, it, this is what's happening, this is what God is, is communicating. But rather, at the beginning, they begin to view him with uh, amusement. Here's what the crazy prophet is doing now. And then, uh, and maybe even some hostility being directed toward him. And, uh, but needing the whole 430 days to drive home uh, this message. And so God called him to do it. It's amazing how, uh, wh- what links God will go to to get through in, in our lives. And then, and then there's a third thing that God wanted him to do in this kind of a, a dramatized uh, prophecies. He said, uh, verse 9, also take for yourself wheat, uh, barley, beans, lentils, uh, millet, and spelt, and put them into one vessel, one container, and then make bread of them uh, for yourself. And during the days, number of days that you're lying on your side, uh, the 390 days, this is the ration uh, you should eat. This is going to be your food. And your food which uh, you eat shall be by weight uh, 20 shekels a day. From time to time you shall eat it. So, he, in those days, to have um, a loaf of bread, which is more or less a bun in those days, uh, ideally it would be, uh, come, be made of wheat. That was a, a middle class and up uh, uh, the, the grain that was used for food. Barley, was the, that was the grain of the poor person. Uh, that, that was working hard to just say, what's the cheapest thing I can get to get and fill my belly every day? And that, that's barley. And here uh, God calls on 
Ezekiel to now make bread out of six different kind of uh, substances. And what he's representing to the captives in, in uh, uh, Tel Aviv is the fact that uh, food is going to get so scarce because of the siege of Jerusalem that people are going to look everywhere and anywhere they find anything that they can mix together with anything else and make it into something you can eat in order to ward off these hunger pains, that's what they're going to do. There's not going to be any bread made completely of wheat, no bread made completely of barley. It's going to be like they sweep the floors of their house and anything that comes together, they will make something to eat out of that. That's going to be the desperation and the hunger that the city is, is going to experience. And they did. And ultimately, as we'll see in a moment, not only did their food run out, uh, but uh, parents began to eat their children uh, after they died, and children ate their parents. And still they would not turn from their sin. Still they would not turn uh, back to God. And, uh, and so this is what's being represented. He's going to eat this uh, the, uh, uh, for that period of time. The little loaf that he would make of these six different uh, grains would be about eight ounces. And it says, from time to time you shall eat it. In other words, he would take a little nibble of it uh, uh, all the way through, uh, uh, through the day. But not only would food be scarce in a siege, uh, the first thing that would typically give out would be food, uh, but also water would, uh, would ultimately become scarce as well. And so he told him now to demonstrate what's happening in Jerusalem. These prophets are telling you this and all. I'm telling you it's tough in Jerusalem and it's going to get tougher. And water will become uh, 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 short to, uh, to find as well. And you shall also, as you're laying on your side for all of these days, you shall eat this little bit of food every day. And, uh, and, I, and I personally, I'm convinced that that uh, con- did constitute the totality of his diet for those 390 days. Some people say, well, he just ate that much in public and then went home and had a meal. I think he went to skin and bones. Uh, just like the, the people were, was happening in Jerusalem as a, as a model uh, to them. But then onto the water, you shall drink water by measure, just a little sip at a time, one-sixth uh, of a hen, uh, just one pint of water uh, he, he could drink in a day, and you'll drink it from time to time, you shall drink it. In other words, he'll sip it uh, through the day, and you shall eat it as barley cakes and bake it. Uh, and so here is, is the food, uh, the shortage of the food, the shortage uh, of, of the water, the restriction on it. And then in uh, verse uh, 12 here, very graphically, uh, God begins to demonstrate through Ezekiel the shortage of fuel that would happen within the city as a result of the siege. Uh, again, one of the first things that would go even before the food and water would be wood for cooking and to, uh, to bake this bread and to, and to make these things that uh, constitute our, our sustenance. And so to demonstrate that, he said, you shall eat it as uh, barley cakes and bake it using fuel of human waste uh, in their sight. So he calls on Ezekiel here. I want you, when you make this barley loaf and of these, these six grains every day, I want you to use dried, 
uh, uh, refuse of human beings in order to supply, produce the heat in order to cook uh, the food. And why would God do that? Because that's exactly what would end up happening in the city of Jerusalem. Imagine the desperation. I mean, we sit and we think, uh, you know, we could maybe have come from dinner or lunch today uh, or an In-N-Out burger on the way to church or going to go get one after church or where, uh, whatever other place that might be. And so we're not familiar with this kind of hunger that a person would come to a place in order to survive, would be willing to cook few, food over human refuse. I mean, the stench alone would be awful and to put it in your mouth. And yet, it's possible that that's exactly what would happen within the city because of, of the fuel. He's just talking. You see how dug in they are. We're not going to turn uh, to God. I mean, they, the love of their sin was so strong it had taken such a hold on them that they were willing to go to that place. Remember, Jeremiah was prophesying to them all of the time, if you just turn, God will uh, forgive you and He'll restore you and, uh, and, and back this Babylonian uh, siege off of you. Uh, but they, uh, they wouldn't, uh, wouldn't, do, uh, wouldn't do it. And so God says, let me tell you and demonstrate it for them, what's going to be going on in the city. And he said, and, and then the Lord said, so shall the children of Israel eat their defiled bread among the Gentiles where I will drive them. And then uh, Ezekiel at this point, um, he protests. It's a mild protest, it's a respectful protest, but certainly we would understand it. And he said, oh Lord God, indeed I have never defiled myself from my youth till now. I have never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beasts, nor has abominable flesh ever come into my mouth. And he protests at this thing that God calls him to do, not on the, not on the basis of hygiene, or grossness of the scene, but on the basis of ceremonial clean, cleanliness. Remember, he is, was intended to be a priest, and he'd been raised uh, uh, around the law. And you might remember when we went through uh, the, the law of Moses that uh, God dictated that as the children of Israel were wandering in these gigantic camps, that if they had to use the restroom, so to speak, that they were to go out of the camp, uh, respect the, the holiness of the camp, go out of the camp, dig a hole, take care of business, and cover it. And, uh, and so Ezekiel is saying here, otherwise they'd be ceremonially unclean. And Ezekiel says, I have... I haven't even come close to what you're asking me uh, to do here. And, and then the Lord said to Ezekiel, See, I'm giving you cow dung instead of human waste, and you shall prepare uh, your bread uh, over it. And so God allowed Ezekiel to use cow's dung in preparing his food as opposed to uh, human waste. Uh, you might not be aware that in ancient times, uh, dried uh, cow dung or camel dung would be mixed with straw. Uh, it would be flattened into cakes, and it would be put on uh, a sun uh, w side of a wall of a house. 
and it would be allowed to, be, to dry in the sun. You knew it was completely dried when it would fall to the ground. And then it would be used as fuel for, um, uh, 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 for cooking your food. And uh, not only in ancient times. I don't know, Tom, when you and I were in India, whether we saw that uh, together, but I do remember going to Israel and being, I mean, to India and being in the smaller uh, villages and seeing it to this very day where the cow dung is put together with the straw, it's put upon the walls, and for the poor, that's their fuel. They can't even remotely afford um, uh, wood for the cooking of their food every day, and there certainly isn't a gas line uh, or propane tanks or any of these, these kind of things. And so, you know, the next time we're kind of complaining that we don't have the latest iPhone or uh, whatever, we are so massively rich on the basis of just the appliances that are in our home and what is available to us with just the turning of a handle uh, compared to the rest uh, of, of the world. And so this was a common kind of, uh, of, of thing in, in the ancient world, and so God uh, yields on the use of the human waste, but again, in yielding with Ezekiel, it wouldn't change the fact that that would be the reality in, in Jerusalem. And the Lord said to him, moreover, uh, rather, moreover, he, the Lord, said to me, Son of man, surely I will cut off uh, the supply of bread in Jerusalem, and they shall eat bread by weight and with anxiety and uh, drink uh, water by measure with dread, that they may lack bread and water and be dismayed with one another and waste away uh, because of their iniquity. And so you... Um, the, talking about the, uh, being dismayed at the sight of one another, it means that, you know, again, mirrors weren't something that was common, and they would look at one another in their kind of starvation condition and, and be dismayed, and yet still they would not repent, though God continually uh, called on them to, uh, to repent. And then uh, these signs continue now in chapter 5, and you, son of man, there's the title again, take a sharp sword and take it as a barber's razor. Now, uh, I don't know the last time uh, you used a sword for a haircut uh, or shaving your beard, and, uh, but it would be a remarkable sight, wouldn't it? So Ezekiel goes outside of his house, again on this main thoroughfare, and now he begins to cut his hair with a sword. And he begins to cut his beard with a sword. Uh, would uh, be dramatic in, in gaining an audience, which is the whole idea behind it, and then the message of it as well. And so he was to take that sword and to have it pass over his head and over his beard. And then he was to take this, uh, the, 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 the hair that came off of this and he was to weigh it and he was to divide it. And he was to divide it into three equal portions. And he said, you shall burn with fire one-third of that hair uh, in the midst of the city. Again, here is the, the clay tablet that is also part of what he's doing at this point in time. And, and he, there is to be a fire associated with the city now, and he is to throw a third of the hair into that fire, and it burns in, in, within the model of, uh, of the, uh, the city. 
and, uh, uh, and uh, when the days of the siege are finished. And, uh, and so after he's been done on his side. And then you shall take one-third of the hair and strike it all around with a sword. So imagine he, I don't know if he puts it up in the air or he puts it on the ground. He just begins to smite that hair with a sword. Again, going to gain a great audience on this. And he begins to smite the hair with, uh, with the sword, and then one-third he was to take and just scatter, throw it up into the wind, and, and let the wind uh, scatter it. And I will draw out a sword uh, after them. And, uh, and, and you shall take then a small number of these hairs, and you'll bind them uh, in the edge of your garment. And then take some of them again, throw them into the midst of the fire, and burn them in the fire. And from there a fire will go out into all the house uh, of, of Israel. And so uh, the one-third of the hair burned in the midst of the model of the city there symbolized that a third of the population of Jerusalem would die of, of famine and disease within, within the city associated with, with the siege. And then the hair that was to be stricken with a sword symbolized the fact that a third of the city would then uh, die by virtue of the sword once the Babylonians had uh, entered into the city, one-third of the hair being scattered in the wind with kind of the promise that the sword will follow them, speaks of the one-third of the population that would flee the city uh, out into the surrounding nations or that would be taken captive by the Babylonians and, and to, to Babylon. When he talks there in verse 3 about the small number of hairs that he was to uh, be bound in the edge of his garment, it, it symbolized a remnant that God would keep alive. He would not allow the Jews to be utterly destroyed, and, uh, and, and, uh, the, and so he would continue his plan through this small remnant that he would, uh, that he would protect. And, uh, and then some of even the remnant, as we see there in verse 4, uh, were to be, uh, of the hairs representing the remnant, were to be thrown into the midst of the fire uh, once again. And so a remnant would be spared, but uh, then even some of those would later perish. Uh, you remember when we were going through the book of Jeremiah, that uh, following the conquest of, uh, of Jerusalem a third time by the Babylonians, that, uh, that, that Ishmael uh, assassinated Gedaliah, who was made the, the governor of, of Judah and Jerusalem at that time, and, uh, and, and uh, killed Gedaliah, who was recognized by the, the Babylonian uh, government. And, uh, and so maybe it was a reference to some of even the remnant now being killed in this way, or uh, the fact that, that uh, those who survived this uh, fire, uh, this final siege of, uh, of Jerusalem, uh, when they went into Egypt, remember, with Jeremiah and all in order to flee from Nebuchadnezzar and what he might do in, in coming in retribution for the killing of, of Gedaliah. And ultimately, Nebuchadnezzar came into Egypt and, and, uh, and conquered there as well. And uh, so, uh, the plight of even the remnant, the detail with which God is representing uh, the, the prophecy of what ultimately happened is, uh, is, is amazing. And so, he gives them the interpretation in verse, uh, verse 5. You say, well, why didn't you wait to say all that till here? I was just so excited. I'm sorry. <laughs> Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. Now, remember, all of the prophets are telling the Jewish people 
that this kind of thing is going to happen to Babylon. And God says, I've got some bad news for you. This is not going to happen in Babylon. This is going to happen in Jerusalem, whatever your false prophets are saying. This is Jerusalem. I have set her in the midst of the nations and the countries all around her. And she has rebelled against my judgments by doing wickedness more than the nations and against my statutes more than the countries that are all around her. For they have refused my judgments and they have not walked in my uh, statutes. Uh, Interesting that God speaks to them. And this happens repeatedly in the Old Testament that the children of Israel were outdoing the pagan nations in terms of sinning. And sometimes I, you, you look at that and you wonder, how can that be? How can you have a godly heritage like that? How can you have um, the blessings of that godly heritage? And then when you turn to idolatry, what the world worships, you out the worst sinners. And yet, that's what they did. And sometimes you see, I don't know what, uh, how it happens. I... You know, sometimes you'll hear about someone who's been raised in the church and all, and then, and boom, they get out there and get exposed to all of the access to what the whole world is worshiping. And sometimes they'll, they'll run headlong into sin in a way that a pure pagan, someone raised in a pagan household, wouldn't even dream of. I think maybe one of the reasons is, is that um, if you were raised among the Philistines or uh, uh, among the Edomites or these other nations that were following other gods, uh, then you grew up your whole life recognizing uh, the, you were exposed to the idolatry, but you were also exposed to a population uh, and what happened to a population that then worshipped that god. And it wasn't good. So you would become like self-monitoring all right, this is the gig. I mean, this is the, the idol that our country uh, worships. We got to do it. But if you go headlong into this, you're going to end up destroyed. We see it all around us. And it almost teaches the pagans to put some lines in your life. That sometimes the person that's enjoyed the blessings of God all of their life, uh, they don't recognize and the pagans recognize, no, there's a price that you pay for this. You've got to be careful with this. And, uh, but whatever the rationale, they, they did worse. And therefore, uh, thus says the Lord, because you have multiplied disobedience more than the nations that are all around you and have not walked in my statutes, nor kept my my judgments, nor even done according to the judgments of the nations that are all around you. Therefore, thus says the Lord uh, God, indeed, I, even I am against you and will execute judgments in your midst and the sight of the nations. And I will do among you what I have never done and the like of which I will never do again because of your abomination. So God again speaks to his people and says, your biggest problem is not the Babylonians. I wish you would get that out of your mind. Your problem is with me and no one can win a fight with God. It just cannot happen. And when, when you have a relationship with him, he will never allow that to happen. I mean, he'll chasten the living daylights out of us. 
in, in order to bring us to, to repentance. And he said, therefore, because of their stubbornness related to their sin, here we come to it, therefore fathers shall eat their sons in your midst, in the midst of the city of Jerusalem, and sons will eat their fathers. You start, I mean, it's just words on a page, right? Think about eating your dad. Think about carving a piece of, of, uh, off the thigh of your son and eating it and being unwilling to repent of my sin, even going that low in order to have the situation turn around. What we are capable of uh, is frightening if we don't walk with God. I don't know what kind of illusions you have about yourself. I come from a funny family, and I, I understand uh, how safe the Lord has made me and how safe He keeps me. There is almost nothing that I think of in the whole world that if in the wrong circumstances, raised in the wrong situation, and the wrong, 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 that I'm incapable of. And I am so thankful for the life that the Word of God allows us to enter into and to live. You are capable of doing this. So I would, I, I could never, I would never, I would die before. You don't know that. I don't know that about me. But one of the great things for us as Christians is we will never need to know that because walking with God will never put us in that place. It is unimaginable. I don't even want to think about the human being I would be tonight if God did not save me 40 years ago. And I never look at a command in the Bible that God gives to repent or to obey or to do this or that as some kind of a grinding thing. It is my privilege to do that. It is my privilege to have a Bible. It is my privilege to obey it and then to enjoy the life, the quality of life, the quality of human being that we become as a result uh, of it. No, the, holiness is a privilege. It's an absolute privilege. And this is how low they would go. And I will execute judgments among you. And all of you who remain, I will scatter to all of the winds. And therefore, as I live, says the Lord, because uh, you have defiled my sanctuary with all of your detestable things. They brought the idols right into the, the, the temple and with your abominations. And I love it when God talks about idolatry in the Old Testament, and he uses the term idols and abominations in the same, uh, same breath. It is, they are abominations before the Lord. And therefore, I will also diminish you. My I will not spare, nor uh, will I have any pity. And one-third of you shall uh, die of the pestilence, and be consumed with famine in your midst, and one-third shall fall by the sword all around you, and I will scatter another third to all the winds, and I will draw out a sword after them, and thus shall my anger be spent, and I will cause my fury to rest upon them, and I will be avenged, and they shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it in my zeal when I have spent my fury upon them. It's kind of a funny thing 
I think that when you, uh, sometimes people, um, they can be raised in church or around the things of the Lord, and that uh, relationship with the Lord hasn't become their own in the way that it should. Uh, or you get people who commit their life to the Lord in a service, and yet they're going to kind of play a game with God a little bit. They're going to maintain control of their life. Uh, but I do like the fire insurance. I, I don't mind not uh, going to an eternal lake of fire one day. But uh, the rest of it, no, I got too many things to see and too many things to do. And so we go on about our business as if uh, this is all a fairy tale, as if none of this is real. And then what happens? No, when we enter into a relationship with God, God takes that seriously. And, and one of the interesting things about it is that, is that you start make, I make this commitment to the Lord, and then I start to not take it seriously, and I start to treat it as like a game or whatever, and then, I, and then God has His ways of coming along and saying, oh no, you're not going to do that. I take this seriously, and the commitment that you've made. And, and then, you know, he, he begins to work in our lives to where we're not successful in sin. We can't enjoy sin the way that we once did uh, in, in the world. And, and while we thought we were entering into some kind of fast and loose, uh, you know, weekend relationship with God and whatever, no, no, he had a completely different mind related to it. And, uh, and he takes it seriously and won't let us be successful uh, in, in that. I, 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 I'm not quite getting it uh, where I want to in my mind here uh, related uh, to this, but uh, there have been times where the Christian life for me has become very difficult. And, and I'm not talking about a temptation. I'm just talking about trials, warfare, difficulty. And, uh, and sometimes, you know, you'd like to do like a hard 90 out, not into uh, paganism or something like this, but, you know, um, Lord, it feels a little bit like I'm on the front line a lot and doesn't feel like I'm getting much of a break related to warfare and one trial after another. And sometimes I felt that about this body. It's like, Lord, how many times are we going to get hammered here on, on things? And sometimes I'm tempted to think, I'll just find a different gear. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to draft somebody else uh, here. Or let this church draft some other church or churches within town. And then you find out the Lord doesn't let you do that. He just doesn't let you do that. He said, no, no, I, I called you and I saved you. And here you're not wanting to take seriously what this is all about, but I never stopped taking it seriously. And I'm going to keep you uh, in that place. And it's, and it's a wonderful thing. Uh, we've got all of heaven to rest and, and to enjoy your, ourselves. And we will enjoy ourselves. doesn't mean I don't enjoy myself now. That's not what I'm talking about uh, it, at all. But sometimes I can be a sniveler and a whiner uh, with, with the best of them. And he said, moreover, verse 14, I will make you a waste and a reproach among the nations that are all around you and the sight of all who pass by. And so it shall be a reproach, a taunt, a lesson, and an astonishment to the nations that are all around you. When I execute judgment among you in anger and fury and in furious rebukes, I am the Lord, I the Lord have spoken. 
And when I send against them the terrible arrows of famine, which shall be for destruction, which I will send to destroy you, I will increase the famine upon you and cut off your supply of bread. So I will send against you famine and wild beasts, and they will bereave you, pestilence and blood shall pass through you, and I will bring the sword against you. I, the Lord, have uh, spoken. Now, th- those, are two, those, are, those two chapters are really something, aren't they? That, that's heavy old stuff. And it, and, and it would really get the attention of the surrounding nations to see God judge His people in this way because their gods didn't judge them in, in that, that kind of a way. And when you look at how strong God is with the Jewish people in this judgment, and you think to yourself, what in the world could be behind the strength of this judgment? Well, I'll tell you one thing, God's glory. And God being properly represented by some group of people in the world, and not to be represented before the world, or Christianity being represented before the world as some kind of thing that we have made up. The stakes are too high. And the other reason that God is so serious about this judgment, and this reason reaches right into this room tonight, is that these Jewish people at this time, out of their love for sin and their love for idolatry, and all of the lewdness and everything that went with it were putting at risk God's plan through the Jewish people. And what is the mountaintop of God's plan through His people was that a Savior might be born into the world through that bloodline to provide salvation to everyone who would call upon Him for that salvation. Out of their love for sin, they have put the eternal plan of God for the salvation of mankind at risk. What a nutty thing to do. Nutty's the wrong word. It's the best one I could come up with. How disproportional could you be uh, than they were doing? And so God is going to take and He's going to judge them and He's going to purify them and He's going to, uh, he's going to separate a remnant unto Him so that one day uh, a man by the name of Joseph can marry a woman by the name of Mary who was bearing a child by the Holy Spirit. And, and, and bearing a, a son of the bloodline of Judah, the very tribe that, Jesus, that is being judged here and is throwing all of this away in order that the world might know a Savior. And so when you look at it in terms of the eternal realm of things, this wasn't just, you know, they're upsetting me with how, how far sideways they're going. No, the damage that they are doing is damage that is, can't even be put into words. 
And so God decides that he, because they're risking all of this with their idolatry, that he decides that he's going to judge them. Uh, the promises have already been made that Messiah is going to come through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, Judah, through the lineage of David and so forth. He's got to keep those promises. And now the people don't take that seriously. And so he's going to purify them to keep his promise alive. And we're thankful for that. The whole world is thankful for that. And one day when we're in heaven and we look at what was required in order to sanctify them, in order for that plan to go forward, even the greatness of this judgment will seem like a very small thing in terms of the glory that it protected, in terms of being born into the world, and then the glory that one day we're going to enjoy in heaven as a result. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the privilege of not only knowing it, but the privilege of obeying it every day. And Lord, we're a simple people here, and we're in this room, and you're, you look upon us this evening. And we pray, Lord, beyond just the words of my mouth and agreeing with my words, but that you would look at the prayer that is in our heart as we just thank you for the privilege of being able to obey your word. We bless you for the miracle that has occurred in our lives as a result of the spiritual birth. And then, Lord, the miracle that has happened through your living word and how it has changed us and turned us into human beings that we would never have otherwise become. And we bless you tonight for that, Lord. And we thank you tonight for that. And we thank you in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.